for the record, the 70s. This is Amy, your host for this one woman, one mic show. This is the place where we take a deep dive into the music, politics, and culture of the 70s. In this episode, we will take a look at what a sexual revolution can do for music and vice versa. You know, music has always been about selling some version of sex and sexuality. The 70s did not invent that. The very term rock and roll was a code term for sex in the 1950s. Elvis sold sex every time he shook his hips on stage or worse yet, your television. What we do see in the 70s is more direct references to sex in music, and by the end of the 70s, we see female musicians and songwriters making music about women claiming some authority over their own sexuality. First, thank you for your support of this podcast. If you are new to the show, welcome. Of course, listening to the show is the best way to help, but if you want to do more, I ask that you just... Tell somebody about it. Spread the word to help like-minded people find the show. You can also go to the show's website at ftr70.com and click on any Patreon link. You can become a patron of, for the record, the 70s, for as little as $1 a month, which helps pay for equipment, subscriptions, books, and helps keep the ads away. To be clear, the sexual revolution that began in the 60s and carried on into the 70s was not a complete revolution. What this revolution did was bring new attention and, to a degree, new acceptance on the open discussion of sexuality. And we all saw sexuality as a more open aspect of art, such as film and music. However, it can also be argued that for women, this attention on sex came with exploitation as much as liberation. If you're not sure what I mean, go find some reruns of that 70s, 80s uh, classic TV sitcom Three's Company and take note of how the writers handled the character of Chrissy played by Suzanne Summers. It's a little hard to watch now. As Summers tells it, the writers intentionally wrote into the script at various points that the character of Chrissy should jump up and down. And if you've ever seen the show, or if you've ever seen Suzanne Summers, I think we understand why. It has also always been true that there are different standards of acceptable behavior, sexually speaking, for men and women, and no sexual revolution has completely changed that. One thing that did change with the revolution, or the sexual revolution of the 70s, was the ability for women to take more control of their sex lives without fear of pregnancy, and that was made possible by the birth control pill. Social conservatives, especially Roman Catholics, freaked out when the pill was approved by the FDA in 1960. But look, it's not like single women were not already having sex. Of course they were. But birth control was not reliable, and that risk of pregnancy was a major factor in keeping women from pursuing an active sex life in a similar way that men did. Really, who did these people who were fine with men having sex but were ready to uh, shame women think that these men were having sex with? Now, the makers of the pill were not prepared for the number of women who were going to go tell their doctor that they wanted it, which is exactly what many people, some liberals included, were afraid of. They were afraid that single straight women were going to have sex because they wanted to. The pill also allowed married women 
to have an active sex life without becoming a baby-making machine, a development that was celebrated by none other than country superstar Loretta Lynn. Loretta married at the age of 15 and gave birth to the first of five children at the age of 16. Doolittle Lynn was such an alcoholic, abusive jerk uh, that he cheated on her with such regularity that he didn't even bother to try and hide it. And he was such an ass that he left her while she was pregnant and such a womanizer that he slept with his own sister-in-law. If anyone was well-situated to celebrate the arrival of the birth control pill, it was Loretta Lynn. In 1972, she recorded the song The Pill, written by Lorene Allen, Don McCann, and T.D. Bayless, and produced by country music legend Owen Brandley. However, her record label would not release this record, a record produced by Owen Bradley, for crying out loud, until 1975. Here is Loretta Lynn singing the praises of The Pill. You wind me and dine me when I was your girl. Promised if I'd be your wife, you'd show me the world. But all I've seen of this old world is a bed and a doctor bill. I'm tearing down your brooder house, cause now I've got the pill. All these years I've stayed at home while you had all your fun. And every year that's gone by, another baby's come. There's gonna be some changes made right here on Nursery Hill. You set this chicken your last time, cause now I've got the pill. This all Let's take a closer look at some of the lyrics from The Pill. This incubator is overused because you've kept it filled. The feeling good comes easy now since I've got the pill. It's getting dark, it's roosting time, tonight's too good to be real. Oh, but daddy, don't you worry none, because mama's got the pill. Referring to yourself as an incubator is literally calling yourself an object, a literal baby-making machine. But, quote, the feeling comes, or the feeling good, pardon me, comes easy now. Uh, that says a lot. In other words, I can have sex because it's fun and not worry about getting pregnant. Not surprisingly, the idea that a woman could not want to have sex for the purpose of becoming a baby incubator was considered distasteful by some radio stations, and they just would not play the song. However, uh, Loretta Lynn has never been accused of being afraid of speaking her mind, and this song is a reflection of the importance of the pill and its place in both the sexual revolution and the women's rights movement, too. Can we make a case that music was part of this loosening of sexual values that helped push the sexual revolution forward? I'm going to try to do that. Revolutions are often the work of young people. We became a youth-oriented society in the 1950s when many teenagers for the first time did not have to work. doesn't mean that they didn't work, but they didn't have to. They did it to buy cool stuff like cars and clothes and records. Therefore, they were also marketed to. The music that the young people of the 1950s and 60s liked was more sexual in 
a more direct way. Yes, if we look through the lens of music reflecting society, we see that music has always been used as a way to talk about sex. We can also see how songs were more tame, more, how should we say, covert up until the late 60s. I want to hold your hand. Will you still love me tomorrow? Um, You've really got a hold on me. He's so fine. We know what they meant. They meant, let's spend the night together, which the Rolling Stones just went ahead and said in 1967, even though Ed Sullivan made them change the words to let's spend some time together. Uh, Go over to YouTube when you're done listening to this podcast and go uh, dial up some of the film footage of Mick Jagger rolling his eyes while he sings Let's Spend Some Time Together on The Sullivan Show in 67. In 1969, two years after the Rolling Stones were not supposed to sing Let's Spend the Night Together on The Sullivan Show, a look at the Hot 100 and the Top 40 shows that we were having a battle of musical will on the pop charts. The Stones had honky-tonk women in the top 10 in the fall of 1969. Let's review the lyrics. I laid a divorcee in New York City. I had to put up some kind of a fight. The lady, then she covered me with roses. She blew my nose and then she blew my mind. Sure, she blew my nose. Got it. At the same time that Mick Jagger is singing about a divorcee so kindly blowing his nose, and that song was hanging around the top 10, so was the bubblegum pop classic Sugar Sugar by the fictitious Archies, which was at number one for a month. You remember that sweet, no pun intended, song, right? Sugar Sugar? Let's listen. Sugar Sugar was still in the top 20, and no doubt burning up AM radio, when we got this song that was sneaking into the Hot 100 at number 91.
Well, that's not sweet at all. No, uh, that is a whole lot of love, and that is assertive, and it's loud, and it's kind of sexy. Have you ever watched any old uh, Led Zeppelin concert footage and noticed what Robert Plant did with the microphone stand? Someone asked Plant one time why he said, I'm going to give you every inch of my love instead of why didn't he just say I'm going to give you every centimeter, uh, given that he's British. A centimeter just doesn't have the same ring to it, does it? But I will submit to you that Donna Summer is going to one-up Robert Plant in the musical orgasm department a few years later. It is slightly amusing that not everyone seemed to get a whole lot of love. One reviewer in 1970 said that the song was pure nonsense and painful to listen to, and he basically had to suffer through listening to Robert Plant to get to Jimmy Page's guitar riffs. Uh, Rolling Stone hated the whole album. The Port Huron Times Herald in Michigan said that Led Zeppelin was a, quote, curious rock group when they devoted a line in their newspaper to take note that whole lot of love had just creeped into the top 10. There is a change coming our way in the 70s, spurred on by groups like the Stones and Cream and Led Zeppelin, with this song not only giving us a glimpse into the beginning of heavy metal, but we are getting it in a way that is very sexual. It's also very masculine and very dominating. Uh, It's hardly a feminist anthem, but it wasn't trying to be one. Marvin Gaye released the Let's Get It On album in 1973. He wrote the liner notes himself, and within them included this quote from T.S. Eliot, Birth and copulation and death. That's all the facts when you get to brass tacks. The album is no doubt about copulation, but to write it off as simply an album about sex or a vehicle for the title track is to miss the point. This is as socially and politically aware an album as What's Going On, which was released two years prior to this. Michael Eric Dyson, who is a sociology professor at Georgetown, among other things, made the point that for a black man to make such an erotic album was actually quite brave. After all, that flies completely in the face of the black exploitation films that were being made at the time. Um, Shaft comes to mind. Marvin wrote an album about a black man celebrating sexuality and eroticism and love. We should also not forget that he was the son of a minister, the man who would shoot him and kill him in 1984, and that there always seemed to be that thread of spirituality in his music. Even in Let's Get It On, he sings, I've Been Sanctified. It seems genuine. Even as this album, which includes the blatantly sexual You Sure Love the Ball, featuring a woman moaning in the background, it's clearly about sex. It's not thoughtless sex, though. It's a reflection of that part of the sexual revolution that celebrates sexual freedom as something beautiful and natural. Marvin might say, a gift from God.
Let's Get It On was released in the summer of 1973, and it was not only a number one pop hit, it became the best-selling Motown single up to that time. It is not insignificant that 17-year-old Janice Hunter happened to be visiting the recording studio when 34-year-old Marvin recorded that. A year later, Janice gave birth to the first of their two children, and their daughter, Nona, would also go on to become a singer. Jan and Marvin got married in 1977, and then they were divorced about four years later. Much has been written about that marriage and what we will politely call Marvin's demons. But my point for bringing it up now is that he was singing to her when he recorded the Let's Get It On album, and it shows. To be a true sexual revolution, emphasis on revolution, there needed to be some space for women to be as overt about their own sexuality as men. They needed to be able to express their own needs and not simply be the sexual receptacle for men. Therefore, this is not the part of the program where I discuss how women achieve sexual equality in the sexual revolution because they didn't. I know I said that largely thanks to the birth control pill, women could have an active sex life, but that did not address issues around pornography or, as we are questioning here in the second decade of the 21st century, issues around consent. Here's what it did, though. To some extent, it took women out of the passive role in sexuality. What, then, do we make of Lady Marmalade? Do songs about being a hooker like this one, or Bad Girls, which was released at the end of the 1970s, count as a woman claiming her sexuality? It's a complex question, because I think sex workers do have an important place in our society, but for the sex worker, it's work. It's not sex. And being a hooker seems as if it is a very subordinate role, but Lady Marmalade shows us that it does not have to be. LaBelle was such a a groundbreaking group. They pushed the boundaries, their costumes and stage shows and assertiveness on stage were all a long way from, say, Diana Ross and the Supremes. This was funk and R&B and blues, and it was fresh. None of the women in the group wrote Lady Marmalade. In fact, it was uh, written by men, Bob Crew and Kenny Nolan. Patti LaBelle claims that she did not even know what the song was about at first. She just sang it. But what these men did with the song was put Creole Lady Marmalade in the power position as she asks, Voulez-vous cocher avec moi ce soir?
processing that Patti LaBelle said she did not know what that song was about. Well, the ladies sure sang the song like they knew what it was about. Understand that this song, which was released in the fall of 1974, was not just about claiming space for women to own their sexuality, but for black women specifically. Lady Marmalade was added to the National Registry by the Library of Congress in 2020. And this is from the essay that uh, punk artist Adele Berté wrote to explain the song's significance. Racist tropes about black women's sexual veracity and looseness sprang from the hate well of slaveholders attempting to justify rape, decrying the, quote, Jezebel who made them do it, thus forcing the black female erotic underground. Lady Marmalade helped create a shift of perception seducing nations into singing along to a proud, unfettered sexuality from the black female point of view. The trio channeled Lady M's erotic ferocity in the spirit of Ralph Ellison's change the joke and slip the yoke, blowing the racist Jezebel stereotype by flaunting their sexual agency with the roar of a three-headed lioness. If you want to learn more about uh, Adele Berté's thoughts on LaBelle. Uh, she published a book quite literally called Why LaBelle Matters, and you should check that out. Could a woman sing Let's Get It On, though? Donna Summer did just that. Disco created space for many voices that had not been given such a popular forum in the past. If you have not listened to episode one, Disco Doesn't Suck, go check it out. The disco audience welcomed a new boldness in the expression of female sexuality, and Donna Summer was, I will say she was a queen of disco. It's hard for me to say that she was not, that she was the queen over Gloria Gaynor. They were both queens. A title, though, that Donna Summer renounced later in her life, much to the disappointment of her fans. But the song that elevated her status to fans of disco was Love to Love You, Baby. The first version of the song was three minutes and 50 seconds. Neil Bogart, the founder of Casablanca Records, was given that record by Giorgio Moroder, one of Donna Summer's producers and disco genius, by the way. Bogart played it at a party, and he said that when he played it, the whole mood changed. People were dancing, and they were touching each other and getting into it, but then the song was just over, and so they would say, play it again. So Bogart thought, well, you know, I really like this record, but it's over too soon. So he called up Giorgio Moroder and said, give me a 20-minute version. 20 minutes. Okay, he didn't get 20 minutes, but he got a 17-minute version, which became the entire side one of the album, Love to Love You, Baby, which is flowing, and it's sexy, and it's powerful. 
Love to Love You Baby from 1975, the disco edit of the song, the 17-minute version, pushed the boundaries of sexual expression. It, it is sex in many ways. The story goes that when Donna recorded this part of the song, she had to go into the booth by herself uh, in the dark because she was so self-conscious about uh, what she was recording. This is what Neil Bogart said about the record. There's... A music for everybody. There's a music for the kids, the bubblegum music, the teeny bopper music, and there's music for the acid freaks, the quick speed guitar music, and there's music for everybody. There's music for the heavy stoners that sit there and listen to some dynamite people, John Prine. You sit there and drink your bottle of beer and get into that shit, and that's really good. But there was no music for people who just want to sit and relax and make love, you know, and just lay back. You listen to the radio, and every four minutes, well, here's another song. I started making love to television with no sound. Every record you put on, four minutes later, the mood would break. As disco was nearing its end of dominance on the charts in the late 70s, punk rock began to take hold. By its very nature, punk rock was a rejection of the expected, of the ordinary. So the fact that punk bands would lead the way in writing songs that were politically and sexually charged is no surprise. Patti Smith and her band were not punk. They were more of the gateway to punk. In fact, it feels wrong to me uh, to try to label her and her style at all, because how do you label a poet who sings her poetry? She wrote songs from the perspective of someone who believes in music as a means of reflection and the force of change. She labored over her lyrics because her songs are poetry and words matter, all of which makes Because the Night even more incredible. Now, is it Springsteen's song? Is it Patty's song? Bruce Springsteen says it's her song, and I'm not going to argue with the boss. They share co-writing credits and have on occasion performed the song together, but more often than not, they perform Patty's song independently in their own bands. Bruce wrote the music and the chorus, but he was in a kind of musical limbo because of some legal drama with his former manager, Mike Appel. He had written the music and the chorus, but was at kind of a standstill with it. Jimmy Iovine, a legend in his own right, gave a tape of the song to Patty. She did not do much with it, And the way she tells the story, it wasn't because she didn't like it. She did. She was just hesitant to write a song that was not completely hers. Now, Patty, known to agonize at length over her lyrics, wrote Because the Night, in one night, as she waited by the phone for her future husband, Fred Sonic Smith, um, she was waiting for him to call. Kids, you may not know this, but we used to have to wait by the telephone for them to ring. And it actually cost money, extra money, to call someone outside of your area code. 
Here is Because the Night, released in 1978, lyrics and vocals from the incomparable Patti Smith. Poetry, Because of the Night. Uh, this is what Shirley Manson, who's probably best known for being the lead singer of the 90s band Garbage, had to say about this song. Shirley Manson said, To hear a woman talk about lust is so unusual. Women's sexuality is supposed to be covert and hidden somewhere, certainly back in the 70s when this was recorded. Women were expected somehow to not have sexual desire. That was such a taboo, and it's only men, really, that wrote about that kind of stuff back then. She talks about it in such blatant terms. It's so thrilling. Or at least when I heard it, I was like, whoa, she's talking about mm, the inference felt so sexual to me. You could taste it and feel it. Powerful stuff. Music in the 70s was a reflection of the sexual revolution that was underway when the decade began. What ended it? Uh, Some of it was... Baby boomers who were participating in it got older. A major factor is, of course, AIDS. I was in high school when the first cases were reported, and by the time I was in college in the late 80s, we were frankly scared literally to death of random, unprotected sex. The threat of dying will end many revolutions. We did not roll all the way back, though. I mean, we still had legal abortion. We still had the pill. Being gay was somewhat more accepted. And the inroads made by music were a permanent part of the culture. Music did not become less sexual, and women especially hardly retreated back into their shells. At various points, culture pushed the music, but music definitely pushed the culture too. And for music lovers like we are, Therein lies so much of what we love about it. That is all for this episode of For the Record, the 70s. You can follow the show on Instagram at 70s Podcast. All of the sources and show notes are on ftr70.com. Thanks so much for listening. Bye for now.